Jesus is back at dinner again with Martha and her sister Mary, and this time with Lazarus too. There's a growing sense of doom in the air. It's the feeling we all know too well, that something is about to go terribly wrong and we're not sure what. The feeling that everything that looks safe is only superficially safe and there is some hidden menace behind the superficiality. This is just before Jesus' last moment before he crosses into Jerusalem. Mary takes out a jar of ointment and everyone must have been impressed when they saw it. This was worth a year's wages all on its own. You don't often see something that valuable. Then they're even more astounded and aghast as she pours the whole thing out on Jesus' feet. Then suddenly, the hidden menace you felt all along takes on a face and a voice as Judas Iscariot himself speaks up. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, the extraordinary story. Last week, Jesus was at the threshold of Jerusalem, about to catch it in his sights for the first time after leaving Jericho. And he told one of his master parables, the parable of the talents, all about using your talents well and maximizing the value of this sum of money you've been given. In today's episode, we're going to wrap up season three before taking a break. And here we meet Jesus in Bethany, where instead of using money well, we see Mary Martha's sister and Lazarus's sister, waste money, or so it seems. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's read John chapter 12. Mary anoints Jesus. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly ointment of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to take what was put into it. Jesus said, Let her alone. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. The Plot to Kill Lazarus When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus also to death, because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day a great crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, and they went to gather palm branches. Okay, we're going to leave it there because this is exactly where we'll pick up in season four. This is a highly suggestive story, and it does everything it needs to in order to wrap up season three of The Extraordinary Story and set us up for the next season. It returns us to Jesus' side as he interacts with a family, and not just any family. Martha is there, serving once again, after her huge change, 
so now she's not complaining as she serves. Lazarus is there at table with them, he who was raised from the dead after four days. And Mary is still being Mary, giving her full attention to Jesus. And this time the apostles are clearly there too. They may have been there last time also, but this time they're mentioned. We know Judas is there because he speaks. We can also guess that John was there because he describes how the ointment filled the whole house with its fragrance. I want to spend a little bit of time on this story, but then kind of wrap up the season and look at what's coming next. First, let's look at Mary. Like I started to say, here she wastes a whole years of wages on Jesus. Why would somebody do that? Well, there are three reasons, I think. First, because it's not a waste if he's the Son of God. Waste, after all, means to dispose of something that could otherwise be used for a higher purpose. But there is no higher purpose than worshiping the Son of God. We have talked about this already in discussing how creation and the temple referred back to man's original purpose. We were made for right worship, and the original Genesis story is therefore a liturgical story. It's a story of a procession of lesser goods, ending with man first, and then God's rest last of all. The temple, as we saw, recapitulates that basic story, that we are put on earth to rightly order our lives toward God in worship. Men and women are the priests of creation, those who take creation and offer it back to God, handing our gifts back to him in the language we used last episode. Here we have Mary doing exactly that, directly. In fact, the fathers of the church who were writing in a world much more like Jesus' reality than ours saw a significance in how John opens this gospel. Six days before the Passover. This is a symbolic reference to the days of creation, and Mary here is giving creation back to God. He wastes his love on us, lavishing us with more than we can handle and more than we deserve in creation, making us each a millionaire in beauty, truth, and goodness, and a billionaire in grace. And she lavishes him with too much also. But there is no waste with God. That's one reason she did this. A second reason follows from that one, and it's the one Judas points to. He says, why was this ointment not sold and the money given to the poor? Now, this is an argument we Catholics hear a lot. It's often directed at the so-called wealth of the Vatican, which in reality is not really an honest criticism. One meme I saw showed a lineup of cardinals in an ornate Vatican chapel, and it had the words, vow of poverty, you're doing it wrong. Another features Pope Benedict on an ornate chair in rich vestments with the image of a starving African child photoshopped next to him. What's wrong with this picture, it says. Vatican reporter John Allen likes to expose the myth that the church has these riches by comparing the Vatican's annual operating budget to Harvard's. So in his numbers, which are now more than five years old, I think, the Vatican has an operating budget of under $300 million, while Harvard University's is 10 times larger at $3.7 billion, and the Vatican's $1 billion endowment was a fraction of Harvard's $30.7 billion equivalent. Now, if the church was simply using its riches on cardinals and popes, that would still be problematic. But the church, we happen to know, is the biggest provider of non-governmental charity in the world. It's the biggest provider of non-governmental education, But as we'll see, Jesus seems to suggest that by Mary anointing him, she wasn't just not sinning, she was doing something praiseworthy. And she certainly was. 
I remember on my honeymoon, my wife and I went to Mexico, and one of the activities offered by our hotel was a horseback riding excursion into the jungle. We did this and found that it stopped at an impoverished little village that had a poorly translated handwritten sign asking for donations so that the people there could build a church. One of the tourists commented that they would pay for people to have health care, but not for a church. My wife and I, on the other hand, put some money in. Why? Because human beings are more than just their bodies. We need food and water and health care, of course, but we also need beauty, truth, and goodness, and things that elevate the soul. And for millennia, Christians have provided churches that do just that. People whose lives are lived in poverty live in poverty all the time. They don't necessarily have access to the kinds of places that help elevate the minds of those who are more advantaged. They don't go to symphony halls. They don't go to fancy restaurants. They don't have gym memberships. The church offers a place that is grand and beautiful and draws our souls upward and reminds us that God is greater than all of us regardless of our class, and that God has a grand and great future in mind for all of us, regardless of what our life is like today. The poor you will always have with you, and one of the great reliefs that you can give to them is rest for their bodies and souls in a beautiful place that draws their minds upward, upward higher than ours. And this is what Mary's ointment did also. Her anointing acknowledged who Jesus is and what he exists for, And symbolically, we see it fills the whole house with its fragrance. When we waste resources on Jesus, we actually help other people rather than denigrate them. Taking a year's wages and pouring them out on Jesus' feet and then wiping them with your hair is an intimate act that fills Mary with his fragrance and that spreads to everybody around. And this is the reason Jesus himself offers for what she did. She is preparing my body for burial. Again, this is suggestive of the parable of the talents. Remember, the one who wasted his talent literally buried it in the ground. And that's literally what's going to happen with this wasted ointment. But this is different because of who Jesus is and what his burial will be. We waste all kinds of money on the dead. We buy expensive caskets to bury them in. We dress them well for the occasion, or we put them in beautiful urns and inter them in beautiful places. All of this seems right to us because human beings, when they die, are not carcasses to be disposed of, but human beings to be honored and respected still. Blessed are they who mourn, Jesus had said, and what Mary is doing here is like a mourning of Christ. But don't forget who's at dinner there. She's anointing Jesus in the presence of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. On account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Jesus is sitting across from a man who is dead and buried, presumably anointed by his sister Mary, perhaps with this very ointment, before he was raised from the dead by Jesus. So when he says, let her keep it for the day of my burial, he is also implicitly referring to the resurrection, the fact which makes all of our care for the dead make a lot more sense. But this story is also a great indication of what we have to look forward to in season four of The Extraordinary Story. All the players are here. We heard here that the chief priests planned to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. This is a preview of both the passion and death of Jesus and his resurrection. The Gospel of John first told us about this right after Lazarus was raised. We read there that the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. 
But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation will not perish. End quote. John notices the full irony of that statement and says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. Then he goes further, saying, And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. End quote. So here on the threshold of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the high priest has been given a grace from God to predict exactly the theology of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. One man should die for the people that the whole nation will not perish. At any rate, the chief priests have put out the word that spies should inform them of Jesus' movements because they're actively on the lookout for him, on the hunt. And because of the growing popularity of Jesus, the crowds start to gather at the end of this meal. So they must have known he was there. They must have heard what he was doing. The chief priests have been jealous of Jesus from the beginning. We talked about this early on in the extraordinary story because he threatens their status quo. He wants to change their world and they don't want to change. There's a great temptation on all of our parts to not want Jesus to rock our world. We don't want Jesus to upset the balance we have already set in our life, the comfort zone we have scoped out and cordoned off. So we send spies out also, interior spies, to hold him off where he gets too uncomfortable. But then we see another player in the passion narrative here. It shows the growing popularity of Jesus. We're told that many Jews came to believe because of Lazarus and that because of this, a great crowd learned he was there and came to him. The last line I read from John said that the next day, a great crowd who had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. What we will see next is that this crowd will be mobilized as Jesus enters Jerusalem for his last climactic battle. In addition to the leaders who wanted him dead, this is another big factor that we will see in the Passion narrative, this great crowd that is enthralled with Jesus. The crowd will become a big factor in events to come. They're like the crowds we met before, the crowd he preached the parable of the sower to, the crowd that wanted to make him king after he multiplied bread, the multitude that pressed in on him when he gave his parables about money. This crowd is a good representative of us as well because often we drift into Christianity because of a crowd, the crowd in our family, the crowd in our school, the crowd in society, or we drift away from Christianity because of the crowd. The crowd is a them that we don't like, that we don't fit in with, that we've been hurt by. What we forget is that we are the them to somebody else and that we need to be the us with Jesus, the crowd that follows him and learns from him, and we'll see what happens next in season four. Another key player that's introduced here is Judas. We get a key insight into his character here. There are a lot of depictions of Judas that try to get into his character, including film treatments like the nuanced Jesus of Nazareth of Franco Zeffirelli or The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. Zeffirelli emphasizes the second thoughts Judas had that are mentioned in the gospel, and builds a whole narrative about how he got there through a series of unintentional efforts and minor slip-ups that caught him in a web. Gibson's Judas is haunted and filled with self-hatred and kind of gets himself caught in the web. But here we see John foreground the greed of Judas. We'll look at Judas in more detail again in season four, 
But this is the classic case where Judas complains about a waste of money, but is later willing to sell out his Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. And we learn here that he is the treasurer of the apostles and used to help himself to the money. And that gives us a really keen insight into what makes Judas tick and what to avoid. We are often start out as members of the crowd who are just going along with the zeitgeist, but then suddenly we become Judases of a kind. We find ourselves more alarmed by others' sins than by our own. We're able to justify all kinds of decisions that put money in our pocket and take it out of others, while we're very strict about any plans that take money away from our pockets and put it in others. And this is also a stern warning about mixing profit motives with religious motives. That never ends well. The last key player in this gospel is Jesus. And I think that what we can do here is review what Jesus is all about. Because we've seen various statements made in the gospel about why Jesus is here in the first place. And that's a great way to set up for the climax of the story that will soon come. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's a very suggestive statement for us to remember when he is here on the threshold of entering Jerusalem during the High Holy Day. He hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. We've spoken on several occasions about his respect for the temple and all it meant for the Jews. We saw how he was drawn to the temple in his childhood. We saw how he was drawn to the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. We saw him purify the temple, defend the temple, announce who he is in the temple, cry out for people to come to him in the temple, and then we saw him weep at the sight of the temple. Now he will go to the temple for the last time, but as we see here, he still insists that he has come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. At the same time, we also heard Jesus say, right outside the temple, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So yeah, he's here to fulfill the way of the temple leaders, but he's also here to blind the temple leaders themselves. He stands as the true representative of the temple, the true future of the temple, the future of the temple that even the leaders there can't see. That will merge and get lost in another message from the Gospel of John as we move forward in the story. Jesus, when he multiplied the bread, said that he has also come to give us his flesh. He said, quote, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. He came down from heaven, he said, that nothing of his fathers would be lost, and he would give eternal life to us. And his flesh is how we gain eternal life. Well, this is about to be dramatically fulfilled in what happens during the Triduum, during the great three holy days of the Catholic Church, and through the great climax of his passion, death, and resurrection, when he literally gives us his flesh to eat. And Jesus is not just the Passover lamb. He's not just the sheep, if you will. He's also the shepherd. He told us he's the good shepherd who comes to give his life for the sheep. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The apostles will soon find out what that means what it means to receive the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ and how that leads to more abundant life. And that's reminiscent of a couple of other reasons he gave. You'll remember he told Nicodemus, For God sent the Son into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him. And another thing he said early on is, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's what we will soon see him doing. We started out by saying that Jesus Christ is the man from outside our maze who's come to liberate us from our maze. All of us live in a rat maze made up by time and space where we only know the past and we know it only partly and we know nothing of the future but can only guess. God is outside the realities of time and space altogether. It's not that he sees the future like a magician in the maze might know what corridor is coming up. Past, present, and future and all places are present to him at once. And Christians believe that in his revelation, the words of scripture, he gives us that view, his view, from on high overlooking the maze. God didn't try and fail to lead us through the maze. He picked his spot and in the fullness of time sent his son into the maze. And there, 33 years down the corridor of space and time, he died on the cross for us. The event was so radical, its effects became the new center of our maze. It's our goal, our way up and out. Not so much our way up and out. The maze stops being a maze and becomes a world made and held in existence by God. The ground we walk on turns out to be his truth. The walls of the maze become an orchard of plenty that he has filled our lives with to provide for us. And the beauty of his eternal home, like the sun, reflects everywhere, showing us evidence of an artist everywhere we look. Next season, we will see Jesus build his ladder climb it against all odds, and then show us how he means to liberate us. He means to liberate us from the confusion and cramped quarters of the prisons we build and enter today from our prison into the eternal freedom of his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.